what I would say is we're screwing up the climate mm -hmm. and we are polluting the earth in a way that makes it more difficult for enough people to find enough to eat and drink. Um, that is a scientific fact and I, I've got as many scientific facts as I need to yeah. back up that. What I leave to them is the question, do you care? Absolutely. Do you care about that? I mean, I care, otherwise I wouldn't be in the field. Exactly. But what's apparent to me is that most people don't care. We are here for a new episode on Rethinking Climate. Uh, we are very honored to have Paul Likens with us. So you are a professor at UCL and you are an academic in sustainable economics. Here at Rethinking Climate, we talk about environmental uh, communication in particular. So we were very interested in hearing your expertise in particular since much of your discussion has to do with net zero. So Indeed. just to start, if you can tell us the basics of net zero for those who are not much in the field. Absolutely. and. It's a good question because five years ago it was a concept that more or less didn't exist. So it's come onto the landscape incredibly quickly. And um, I think everyone knows now that uh, human activities are emitting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the main one of which is carbon dioxide from burning fossil fuels. And the idea of net zero is that um, we have somehow, if we want, to stop climate change, we have somehow to get to the stage where we are taking as much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as we are continuing to put into it. Uh, this is a huge task. The net zero is that the emissions are on the positive side and the greenhouse gas removals from the atmosphere are on the negative side and when you sum them together you get zero. So that's why it's called net zero. It's a huge task because we currently put into the atmosphere about 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide every year. And we currently take out of the atmosphere uh, only about half that. And I say we take it out. It's actually the oceans and the vegetation on land that takes it out. So we have somehow both to reduce our emissions very substantially and increase very substantially the amount of carbon dioxide that we take out of the atmosphere. So in your experience, you are not only a professor, you have the work, you've worked in many different fields, even in policy making. Why do you think net zero has suddenly become of interest, aside from the fact that we've realized that if, you know, if we didn't do something now, then things might get worse. But aside from that, what other impressions? I think, what, uh, I think two things happened. First of all, uh, policymakers understood for really the first time the seriousness of this issue. Mm -hmm. um, I've been working in it for at least 30 years, and for most of those 30 years, policymakers have not taken it seriously. So the Paris Agreement in 2015, which finally committed policymakers to put a limit on the temperature rise that they wanted to um, keep global warming to, um, 
They then ask the uh, scientists, what do we need to do to stick to that limit? And the answer was very simple. For as long as there is a net positive emission into the atmosphere, the temperature will go on rising. The only way of stabilizing the temperature at any level is to reach net zero. And I don't think they had ever really truly appreciated that. They'd kind of imagined that we could continue just to reduce emissions, reduce emissions um, gently without too much trouble, and that that would solve the problem. But actually, they then came to realize that the only way of stopping the temperature rising is to get to net zero. And the question then became, when do we do that? How quickly can we do that? Because every single time, every single year, there is a net positive emission into the atmosphere, you've got more climate change. And so if you're saying the part of the narrative before Paris Agreement is practically absent, now there are many, even research, uh, discussing how the narrative is, however, incorrect. So what is your impression about this? Well, I don't think the narrative uh, in itself is incorrect. I think the idea of net zero and stopping climate change by getting to net zero uh, is scientifically correct. The problem is that um, the fact that Theoretically, you can remove all these gases from the atmosphere um, is causing some people to think, well, that's fine. That means we don't need to cut emissions to the same extent as we might, all, might have originally thought we needed to cut emissions. And they overlook the fact that greenhouse gas removal is incredibly difficult and in its early stage. One of the main ways of greenhouse gas removal is to plant new trees, to create vast new forests. But if we look around the world, we're still cutting down forests. We're not creating new forests at all. We're cutting them down on a global level. So um, the greenhouse gas removal side of the net zero equation came to be seen as um, a bit of a magic bullet. Oh, we don't need to reduce emissions. We can increase greenhouse gas removals without a true appreciation of just how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why uh, I'm among those people who think that we absolutely must not take the pressure off reducing emissions because greenhouse gas removal is still in its very, very early days. And the models that uh, climate scientists work with that suggest that by 2050, we could be removing 10 billion tons a year of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so that we can keep on emitting that amount, that's fairyland in my view. We simply will not be able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. And assuming that we can achieve it and therefore we can go on emitting means that we're likely to be uh, very, very uh, strongly mistaken. So this conversation itself, especially when it comes to carbon removal and so on, we've seen that with COP26, Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which was much discussed, and yet it remains very complex. So policymakers and scientists do much understand, at least to the extent in which this conversation is happening. But when it comes to the public, what is missing? Well, that's a very good and difficult question, because the fact of the matter is that uh, this is a very complex subject. 
um, whether you do get net greenhouse gas removal from a particular action is extremely difficult to measure and you have to make all sorts of assumptions and the experience we've had with it with the previous versions of uh, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Kyoto Protocol, the Clean Development Mechanism, have shown how easy it is to gain the system and to uh, put in as emissions trading as greenhouse gas removals actions that didn't actually make any, any difference at all. So this is a complex and difficult area. And that's why, uh, in, order to, in order to get understanding, I think, you must say again and again and again, the first thing to do is to reduce emissions. The first thing to do is to reduce emissions. If by 2050, globally, we still have three or four billion tons, in other words, we've reduced by over 90%, then it's possible that we will be able to have that quantity of greenhouse gas removal so that at that level, we can imagine that we have finally stabilized the temperature, not the climate, because the climate will go on uh, reacting to the temperature increase that we've already put into the system for a very long time indeed, but we can stabilize the temperature. Um, but any more than that, in my view, by 2050, one or two, one, three, four billion tons is most unlikely to be feasible. And that means we've got to get well over 90% emission reduction over the next 28 years. And that's going to be tough. Can we build trust when it comes to that? So a lot of uh, carbon removal systems, as you say, have been put in practice, but some make no difference. So there's a lot of little trust in, in the public maybe paying for a project that says that they will, it will help reduce and so on. How can we help that trust instead? Because then the people, it's themselves will be the first also who need to change. We need to change our behavior to reduce sure. emissions. So how can we build that trust? Trust can only be built uh, on the basis of experience. So you have to put in place at the beginning a robust monitoring verification framework so that people can see that this is happening and that it is indeed uh, removing uh, carbon. So if we plant trees, these trees have to be seen to grow and there have to be measures in place that if by chance they're burnt down, immediately new trees are planted and they are looked after. Um, and that kind of monitoring, reporting and verification, as it's called, uh, is difficult to achieve and it's very difficult to win trust. And when there are large sums of money at stake, and there are some big companies now that are investing hundreds of millions of euros mm -hmm. in these sorts of efforts. The temptation to cut corners and simply to take the money and run, if I can put it like that, put in place yeah. projects that actually don't deliver. Mm -hmm. But the companies say that they're spending all this money and that therefore they, they've they solved the problem. Mm -hmm. But the people they've spent the money with are actually not delivering what they said they would deliver, I'm afraid we're going to see a lot of lack of trust before the place the systems are put in place to um, uh, actually make these, these kinds of projects do what they say they do. 
So a lot of that will, will require also scientists to be able to explain what's happening so that people can comprehend better what is put into place. And much of research with scientists also shows that there's a bit of a spectrum of a scientist who knows more but knows how to communicate less rather than the scientist who instead is not as prepared yet can explain better information they understood. Uh, they always use the example of Bill Nye, the science guy in the States, who's actually an engineer but passes on as a climate scientist considering his expertise and work he's done in television. But he's a good communicator. So what, what advice would you provide to fellow colleagues as well, academics who sometimes are unable to explain their work? Well, I think we have to recommend that, uh, or we have to recognize that these are two different skills. Mm -hmm. You can be a brilliant scientist and able to talk to your peers and colleagues in an absolutely understandable way without being able to communicate to a wider public. And uh, just as no one expects me to be an ice skater, because it's a completely <laughs> different skill, yeah. we should not expect all climate scientists to be wonderful communicators. Some of them are, uh, but then we can also rely people who are bright enough to understand the main thrust of climate science. They're not at the cutting edge of research or anything like that, but are brilliant communicators. And in the UK, we have a good example of David Attenborough, who's of kind of regarded as the father of the nation in a funny Absolutely. sort of way. Yeah. He just is a brilliant communicator. And I'm so pleased that finally, mm -hmm. it's taken him a long time, but finally he's communicating properly about the challenge that we face with climate change, with other environmental issues. Because for most of his life... Nobody listened. It, it, well, people were listening to him, but he wasn't saying that there was a problem. Mm -hmm. He was showing how wonderful the natural world was, and everybody lapped that up and thought it was marvelous, without saying at the same time that we were destroying it at an enormous speed. He is now doing that, and I'm extremely pleased that he's turned those skills into uh, part of the climate and wider nature uh, communication movement. And part of the communication especially divides groups. So the sense that there's academics, policymakers, people, citizens, and then experts of various kinds or activists. And it seems like it was always grouped. So how can we instead bridge them together and realize that if we don't speak to each other, then there's no much sense in doing anything that we're doing for our planet? Well, I mean, this can only come from greater understanding of what the issues are. Uh, obviously, policy, policy makers, and particularly politicians, they speak to people all the time. That's their job. Their job is to speak to people and then persuade people to vote for them. Um, unfortunately, they don't always tell the truth when they speak to people, and they don't always tell people how bad things are because people don't like being told that. They'd much rather be told that things are not as bad as they think they are and that they can always get better. And they're more likely to vote for people like that. So politicians have to um, really start being a bit more honest with the public about these kinds of problems that we're beginning to face. Uh, they need to understand the science themselves. And we still have problems of politicians who actually go against the science the whole time. Um, not so much in Europe, but plenty of those in the United States. 
obviously. And uh, I mean, to me, that's almost criminal behavior because you're actually you're stopping people understanding what the real problems are that are life and death issues facing mm -hmm. them and their children uh, in the future. Scientists obviously have to communicate as well as they can, uh, both to politicians and to the general public. And it's been fascinating if we take another scientific issue, the issue of COVID, that we've all been struggling with for the last two years. Even COVID, with people on television in intensive care dying uh, there, there are still people who don't believe in COVID. So it, just because something is a scientific fact does not necessarily mean that it will win universal public acceptance. I'm pleased to say that most people uh, are very sensible when it comes to COVID because it's evidence before your eyes. Uh, most people would get vaccinated against it because, again, uh, it's perfectly clear that that is a good form of protection. Mm -hmm. We need the same kind of um, commitment and perception about the reality of climate change and that the only vaccination against climate change is um, reducing emissions. There's no other way to stop it. And uh, if we hold out against that, then climate change is going to happen as sure as night follows day. And uh, I get the impression that people believe more in COVID because of something before our eyes, as you said. So you see people sick, you understand in television that something's happening. And not so much is happening on climate, as in we do see the results, but as in one of the sessions that I was pleased to follow, you did mention that it's, it appears far away from us frequently. It's getting closer. Uh, what happened last year in Germany is an example of things happening more in Europe. So since part of our audience is also mostly in Europe, that, that was an example. But how can, we, how, how can we then approach something, a conversation in a way that even speaking among our peers, we're not really putting it far away from us. Oh, this happened in Bangladesh. No, no, this is happening in our home. Yeah, I mean, well, I think there are two answers to that. I mean, I think the first thing is to recognize that there is no far away. Hmm. That, as you've said, it, the earth, is our home. Not Ferrara, not Italy, yes. not Europe. Mm -hmm. The earth is our home. Yes. And we need to realize that. So when we are seeing uh, small towns in California and in Canada being incinerated by wildfires, which would have been unthinkable True. 20 years ago, we must recognize that that's happening to us. That's, that's our home that mm -hmm. is on fire. Um, uh, and, the, and the second thing, really, is to try to preserve a memory because we have terribly short-term memories. Mm -hmm. There are people in the UK who've uh, been flooded now practically every year, and I mean really flooded. I mean six foot of water in their homes. It floods so in that, Europe uh, happen more in the UK. So, right, that, yeah. so that everything in the bottom part of their home is ruined and has to be replaced. And that has happened three times in the last five years. These people are still hoping that it's an unusual occurrence and they're going to live the rest of their lives without it happening again. That's because memories are very short. We are still in the UK, we are still building homes on floodplains as if these we're living 100 years ago when the kinds of floods that we're experiencing now work some kind of freak once in 500 year events. They're not. 
than once in a decade event now. And that's a huge issue. So, yeah, we, we need to have longer memories and we need to learn. And uh, humans aren't particularly good at doing that. They're also not particularly good at gathering information. So uh, I'm pleased to say that a survey we carried out with over 150 respondents, which was very tough to get, most of them collect information through family and friends. And that, although reasonable, it's not good because you're, you're having your grandma telling you about the climate rather than reading it somewhere. Well, of course, someone might as well, in addition to, but most of them come from family and friends. So that is a bit not useful. Well, indeed. And I mean, when you're living in a very stable state and things aren't changing very much, um, family and friends is as good a source of information as any. <laughs> and of course, in the majority of cases, you trust them yes. because you don't think they would tell you stuff that was completely untrue. But when we're going through really difficult scientific uh, times, and COVID is a difficult scientific time, and climate change is a difficult scientific time, your grandmother doesn't know about that. And there's no conceivable way she can know about that. Unless, unless she's a climate scientist. Um, uh, well, unless <laughs> she is a climate scientist. But yeah, um, so you've really got to recognize that you need other sources of information in order to be able to cope mm -hmm. with what's going on. Um, any more than in a fast-moving technological field, you would not, most people would not rely on their grandmothers to teach them about the latest techie innovation, True. the latest app on their smartphone. Mm -hmm. They would talk to their peers about that who'd already worked out what was going on. Or if they wanted to know how it worked, they would get in touch with the technology and the technologists. Climate is very similar. We, you know, Family, friends are very good for sources of information about things that they can reasonably be expected to know about. But these are new and difficult topics that we've all got to learn much more about and we're not going to get that information from those sources. Absolutely. So uh, part of your research also has to do with studying renewable energy and much of that. So considering that it's quite a, a sad topic, the one in Ukraine and Russia, now people have started talking again about nuclear, although they were shutting it off years ago because of course why nuclear as if you know there's, there's a whole debate there yes no and some uh, environmental organizations agree with it some others don't some others against in italy there's also an organization for nuclear saying that it will save the planet so but those of course there's no consensus on it but as an expert yourself with with a lot of years of experience what is your impression of it what can you tell us about that um well, nuclear is a low-carbon form of energy, unlike fossil fuels, so we can be clear about that. Um, that Europe has shown that it can do nuclear energy reasonably safely, mm -hmm. so we haven't had a major accident in Western Europe, in European Union kind of countries, uh, ever. And France has generated the great majority of its electricity from nuclear in a perfectly safe and acceptable way. Um, even in Europe, coal production has killed far more people than nuclear uh, has. 
my problem with nuclear now is really twofold. The first is that we haven't yet sorted out what to do with the waste. Mm-hmm. And a Royal Commission report in the UK right back in the 1970s said that we should not proceed with nuclear energy until we'd sorted out what to do with the waste. We have something like 700,000 tons of waste in the UK from our nuclear program, which has to be permanently monitored and which is potentially very dangerous. And we haven't sorted out what to do with it. For me, it's irresponsible to be thinking of a new nuclear program until we've solved that problem. My second problem with nuclear is its cost. It's enormously expensive. We look at the nuclear power station being built in the UK at the moment, Hinkley Point C. It's absolutely eye-wateringly expensive and about three times as expensive as people said it would be before it was built. And that's absolutely standard for the nuclear industry. That's what happens. They always say that the next generation is going to be cheaper Mm -hmm. and they consistently fail to deliver that. Is research up to date when it comes to these kind of technology? Is research up to date? Research into what particularly? Uh, Nuclear technology, all of that, how to do with waste, because from from my understanding it's not really up to date. It requires more attention. We've had lots of research on what to do with it. I mean Mm -hmm. the the most advanced uh, issue on solution to nuclear waste, if it is a solution, is what's happening in Finland at the moment, where they have built a geological repository. But these are sophisticated and very, very expensive um, mining projects. You've got to go down um, a very long way, about a kilometer, and then you build huge tunnels in order to store this stuff in vitrified glass, where it has to stay away from the biosphere, us and other living things, and water, for 100,000 years. I mean, this is a big ask. Humans don't normally do stuff like that. Um, And obviously, as we see with Ukraine, uh, the world is unpredictable. So um, I'm very glad that Ukraine doesn't have large piles of nuclear waste dotted about all over the countryside because they provide a huge target for a very irresponsible um, person who happens to be attacking Ukraine. Um, and the economics of, of getting rid of the waste is an economics we haven't yet paid for. So all the expenses that we've had with nuclear so far that make it very expensive haven't even taken account of the waste yet. That is still another cost to come on top of that. And when we have renewables now as cheap as they are, and increasingly we're getting storage solutions in batteries and other storage solutions that will enable us to store electricity, my feeling is that we do much better to really accelerate on the nuclear, on the renewables front, mm-hmm. and solve the storage problem rather than put shed loads more money into nuclear. Um, which will not generate a single kilowatt hour of electricity for at least 10 years, because these uh, nuclear power stations take a very, very long time to build. Okay. And uh, so maybe this could be the last question. Uh, When it comes to renewables, there's a lot of debate there as well about the fact that you are damaging land, like with uh, with wind turbines, 
for instance, or the, uh, the psychological aspect of looking out of the window and seeing this whole great uh, nature and then these turbines in the middle of them and the disturbs and the sounds and the animals, the, the ecosystem there. How, how should we think about it then, if we think about these factors? Well, I mean, all energy systems have some impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. So we have to accept that if we want to use a lot of energy, and our societies do want to use a lot of energy, uh, we're going to need energy systems of some kind. Um, uh, of course, the proponents of nuclear fusion, as opposed to the nuclear power stations we have at the moment, always say that nuclear fusion is going to solve all these problems and it's mm -hmm. an inexhaustible, infinite, and will be a cheap source of power. They've been saying that for at least 60 years, and always it's 30 years into the future. So, in a way, I'm happy for them to continue to get very large sums of money for research to build their toys, which they do uh, in various parts of Europe and other countries. But it's not going to solve the climate problem. It has nothing to do with the climate problem because it's far too far away. Mm -hmm. If we haven't solved the climate problem by the time nuclear fusion gets to us, we will have failed and the climate will be out of, out of control. Um, so we've got the technologies that we've got. We've got to get away from fossil fuels if we want to solve the climate problem. Nuclear is very expensive and takes a very long time. That leaves us with renewables. We can try to mitigate the uh, environmental impacts. We can perhaps learn to love wind turbines. Um, they used not to be considered ugly. If we now look at pictures of the wind turbines that existed in Holland in the 18th century, we think they're rather sweet. Um, aesthetics is a matter of cultural adaptation. Uh, we can try to site wind turbines out of the way of birds, so out of the, the migratory paths of birds. I'm thinking particularly of offshore mm -hmm. wind turbines now. So we can mitigate those effects. We're never going to reduce them completely. Uh, one solution, of course, would be to use less energy, to have much more efficient buildings that could keep warm and cool without uh, as much energy, uh, and for us to adopt muscle, much less energetic lifestyles, to yes. travel less, to drive less. We're all thinking of electric vehicles now. They will take electricity. That electricity will have to come from renewables. So you can see, uh, if we use less, then we can uh, do with less renewables and we will be having less impact on the natural environment. Mm -hmm. What we can't have is everything of everything. We have to make choices. And that's something we uh, frequently don't want to admit, even among activists, is the idea that it's all because we don't have a choice, because of course our planet is one. It's not like we can move like, the whole uh, metaphor and narrative of we can't change a planet, there's no planet B for this reason. So that's, that's extremely important. Absolutely. And uh, so again, one last question. So as a, you've, you were part of the Green Party, what was the hardest thing for you when you approached the public? For you to explain your mission and your objectives and your experience even in this field? Well, it's interesting that um, this is back in the 1980s, so we're going mm -hmm. back a long time. And back in the 1980s, there was energy efficiency. We were clearly using much more energy than we needed to, and it was all fossil mm -hmm. or nuclear. We had a certain amount of nuclear electricity even in that time. 
Um, so one message was use energy more efficiently. Um, and so that was a less, less, less message. And we're not a less, less, less society. We're a more, more, more society. And the other message was renewables. But of course, renewables were incredibly expensive at that time. And the one really big innovation in the climate field over the last 15 or 20 years has been the cost of solar and wind. The costs have come down dramatically so that they are now no more cheaper than, no, no more expensive than fossil fuels in most countries. That was not the case in the 1980s. I couldn't make that case. So you were going to the public and asking them to vote for you when you were telling them that they would have to use less, less, less energy, more efficiently, of course, so it wasn't necessarily less comfort or services, and they were going to have to pay much, 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 much more for their energy because they were going to have to move away from fossil fuels. This was not a political message that the public then, or I suspect now, would be prepared to tolerate. But of course, we can now have a different message, which is that renewables are no more expensive than fossil fuels. And it's absolutely tragic that it's taken the Ukraine war to cause our politicians to accelerate the renewables program. Why on earth did they need the Ukraine war to, to cause them to do that? Why wasn't climate change and the threat of climate change enough for them does it to seem like every time we need a shock? Possible. We need a shock in our lives to figure out stuff. Um, it certainly is the case, and un un unfortunately, climate change has not yet provided a big enough shock in the way that COVID provided a mm. shock and changed our lives. In the way that the war in Ukraine has provided a shock and has caused us to change our lives. Because the shock of climate change means we wouldn't be able to live on this planet anymore. That's the problem. If we wait for the shock. Yeah. then it will have gone too far mm -hmm. and we will have lost control of any kind of way of generating a, a livable society. We have to take the messages that it's already giving us through floods, droughts, wildfires, sea level rise, glaciers melting. Every time you open the newspapers, you can read, read the scientists about that. Yeah. That's the message. That has to be the shock. And if we don't take it as a shock, as a shock to make us do everything that we can to move away uh, from the current emitting. But these, these are messages mostly directed to privileged people because shocks shouldn't, it's really hard to, to see these shocks for developing countries. Of course it for is. Other communities and, that and, are more damaged. And I mean, all that one can say about that is that. Uh, privileged people create the great majority of emissions. Absolutely. So they're the people who need to feel the shock. Yes, indeed. Um, the poorer people in developing countries and even poor people in rich countries, yeah. they're not going to take climate change seriously. It's everything they can do to get an evening meal. So when, you, when you're worried about an evening meal, you're not going to worry about 40 years down the line. I mean, course, that's, no. that's not a... That's a completely unreasonable. Luckily, they don't need to take it seriously. The people who need to take it seriously are the rich people mm -hmm. who do worry about their kids yeah. um, uh, because they, they've got everything, everything that they need. What the rich people also have not yet fully understood 
is that if we want to beat the climate thing, the rich people are going to have to pay for the development of the poor people, or the poor people are going to develop using fossil fuels, because that's what they know how to do. And COP26 was a perfect example of the way other countries have chosen not to go fully out of carbon because Absolutely. they were really into development at the moment. How can we blame them for Absolutely. that? Absolutely. There's no blame there at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are people with much lower per capita emissions than mm -hmm. people in Europe and the US uh, and in China, incidentally. Yeah. Chinese per capita emissions are very high. Um, and until they see that we are not only prepared to do everything we can for ourselves to move away from emissions, but we're also prepared to give the kind of support for development in low-income countries, they're going to continue down the track that they've seen us go down. Do you think COP26 was as effective to do that? I think that was one of the major failures of COP26. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that rich countries haven't even managed to, in 12 years to put a hundred billion dollars of climate finance on the table to be deployed now is a huge failure. Yeah. When you think of the amount of money we mobilized for COVID in our own countries. Really fast. Trillions. Yes. Really fast. Mm -hmm. And we can't even find a hundred billion for to help the low-income countries to both address and adapt to climate. It's not surprising that low-income countries think that we're not serious. And uh, for as long as they think that, we're not going to move at the pace we need to move. So thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I invite our listeners to follow our YouTube page and social media. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank both. you very much, Asia. New on Curiosity Stream, from predicting volcanic eruptions to alligator blood that could save human lives. We're already getting science data that's never been seen before. The year's best scientific news and breakthroughs on top science stories of 2022. Plus, gazelles in the Old Testament, whales in the Gospel. We're well beyond fish and donkeys here. It's the old world creatures you'd never expect to find in Holy Scripture on Animals of the Bible. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. And for a limited time, get 40% off our annual plan. That's just a dollar a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.